selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. Our articles are free. Our podcasts are free. Our videos are free. And we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spite carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show. If Joe Biden gets into power, what's going to happen is that all of the lower layers of government are going to be populated by people who are out there throwing Molotov cocktails and harassing diners, tearing down statues. They're going to be lawyers and judges, and they're going to be bureaucrats and regulators, and they're going to run people's lives. They're going to try to dominate people with the law and not just with their street fighting terror tactics. It's a terrifying thing. When you have the state and street violence on the same side, we need to put a stop to it right now. And Donald Trump is, you know, however crude an instrument, he is the instrument for frustrating these uh, these imperial designs. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Daniel McCarthy. Daniel is an American writer and editor. He is editor of Modern Age, a quarterly journal on conservative thought, Prior to that, he was editor-at-large at the American Conservative. Daniel has also written for USA Today, The New York Times, The Spectator, and many others. He worked for the Ron Paul presidential campaign in 2008, and over the past few years, he has become one of the most reasoned voices who argues in favour of the Trump revolt against the old political establishment. I talked to Daniel about Trump, Biden, and the future of American democracy. So, Daniel, we're recording this in the week in which Trump and the First Lady were diagnosed with COVID, which I think could give rise to some interesting developments. You've written about the problem of COVID-19 for Trump and how there's possibly a situation where it could end up being COVID-19 that defeats Trump rather than the Democrats, rather than Joe Biden. How significant do you think the COVID crisis has been for Trump? And how significant do you think it will prove to be that Trump himself has now contracted the virus? Well, you know, it's been politically fatal. Hopefully his health will be just fine. But 
It's the issue that is most uh, obviously on Americans' minds. It has wiped out the economic gains, which would have been Donald Trump's uh, primary claim to re-election. And, you know, people are very unhappy, not only with the virus itself, but also with the, the series of lockdowns and with the, uh, you know, sort of condition of life that they've had uh, ever since the virus broke out. And while Donald Trump, you know, has uh, not necessarily been responsible for all of the policies that frustrate them, nevertheless, he's president and therefore I think he's going to get a lot of the blame. In relation to just the broader discussion of Trump, I mean, one of the striking things about the response to the COVID diagnosis is, of course, there's an element of schadenfreude and people making fun of Trump and uh, in some cases relishing in the fact that he is ill, which I think speaks to one of the most striking things about the Trump phenomenon and the Trump era, which is something that you've written about too, which is that Trump is very often seen as more than a politician, more than a president. He's seen as this extraordinary force, usually he's seen as an extraordinary force for evil, certainly by the liberal elites and the old technocratic elites, to such an extent that there's almost this welcoming of his illness in the hope that it might slay the beasts or or at least slow him down. Could you just speak a bit about this view of Trump as being this extraordinarily powerful figure, everything revolves around him, and he's seen as the source of all rot by certain members of the older American establishment? He's a living affront to uh, a certain view of American politics, a very pious view, a view which uh, says that American government is primarily an exercise in goodwill and altruism and benevolence. And because Donald Trump is not plausibly the most altruistic and benevolent individual in the world, the people who have uh, a stake in this very pious view of government feel as if he is a living repudiation of everything they stand for. And uh, that makes them very venomous towards him. And it kind of takes the mask off of them and shows that these are not, you know, sort of rational, benevolent, well-meaning, nice people who just want government to do good things for the whole country. They are, in fact, a class of people who want access to power, either by serving in government or by having, you know, sort of easy access to its corridors, who are alarmed that Donald Trump is revealing that government is rather shambolic, it's not an exercise in rationalism, that it it operates on the basis of hard decisions, which are not necessarily going to please people, and that it can be led by someone who is personally quite offensive to uh, millions of Americans. And I think that Donald Trump's presidency up until the COVID crisis has actually been quite successful in practical terms. But this moral offense that Donald Trump gives to the kind of enlightened elites in America is something they will never forgive. And they are very eager to see him not only defeated, but absolutely humiliated. And his COVID diagnosis is you know, icing on the cake for them. I want to dig down further into this question of why Trump provokes such a visceral response in certain sections of the establishment, which I think is incredibly interesting and important. But before we get to that, I want to touch on something you've just said there, which is about the success of Trump's presidency prior to the COVID crisis, which of course shook everything up. You will be aware that there are not many commentators who say that Trump's presidency was successful. But one of the things that you've written about, which I think is incredibly interesting and important, is that if we scrape away all of the hysteria about Trump and the deranged response that he provokes in certain quarters, he has actually had a palpable impact on the way in which certain political issues are understood. I mean, two examples that you've given are foreign policy issues and also economic issues. And Trump's policies in those areas have been fairly distinctive and have also had, as you argue, a pretty palpable impact on the way in which Americans understand those issues and the way in which other American politicians now speak about those issues. Could you just explain what you mean in relation to those two issues in particular and what you mean by the success of Trump's presidency prior to COVID? Well, I think the most uh, basic measures of success are the fact that uh, before the COVID crisis hit, which is sort of an act of God and is something that I don't think any politician has had a wonderful response to. But before then, uh, Donald Trump had presided over record low unemployment levels for the country as a whole and even for populations that the Democrats normally claim to be looking out for, such as African-Americans and Hispanics. And Donald Trump is the only American president in the last 30 years who has not started a new war 
And, you know, between that and the success we've seen of his diplomacy in the Middle East, I think it's been uh, quite easy to say that Donald Trump is a success. And as far as, you know, sort of changing the views of American politics towards a whole number of issues, when it comes to trade, when it comes to American attitudes towards China, Donald Trump has ushered in a quite distinct new mentality, one that is no longer uh, complacent the way that uh, Americans had been for, again, about 30 years, ever since the end of the Cold War, when it was assumed that nice, easygoing liberalism would just spread throughout the world and that China would follow the same trajectory of modernity that everyone else would necessarily follow and that an end of history would bring about a peaceful and liberal and democratic world. Donald Trump has actually reintroduced us to the idea that actually there may be ongoing rivalries between nation states and that the future may not be automatically uh, inherited by some particular worldview. And in relation to that, in, in terms of the response to Trump, I mean, it's extraordinary, even in the UK and even in Western Europe, the response to Trump has been incredibly visceral, incredibly passionate, and often quite unstable. In London, we there were protests against Trump when he was elected with placards depicting him as Hitler. And there was this notion that the sheer force of Trump would not only destroy America and turn it into a fascist state, but also have this ripple effect across the world. I mean, it really was a strange moment, the anti-Trump sentiment. I wanted to ask you what you think is motoring that, because there seem to be two things going on. Firstly, there is this idea that Trump is simply an offensive, uncouth, unpresidential person who says rude things about women and and is not politically correct. And, And that often seems to be the focus of the bile that he often gets. But on the other side, he does actually challenge political orthodoxies and elements of the status quo that preceded him. So in response to the the way in which he's talked about and the way in which he's depicted, which do you think is the dominant factor in relation to that? Is it simply the fact that he comes off as unpresidential or is he posing a far more significant challenge to politics as it had played out prior to his arrival on the scene? It's a little bit of both, but it's more of the latter. Donald Trump's personality is in itself something of a challenge to the idea of, you know, sort of political norms and the way in which democracy and liberalism and progress are meant to um, occur within our, uh, not just within the United States, but I think throughout uh, the Western democracies. And there is this feeling that if Donald Trump is speaking in ways that are unaccustomed uh, in an American president, and if he is, uh, you know, sort of behaving in ways that are unaccustomed, that this therefore is a deadly threat to political stability and to any kind of nice uh, sort of liberal democratic norms. And what Donald Trump really represents here is the fact that, you know, he, voters were very upset with these, you know, this kind of establishment, these liberal democratic norms. They wanted to see a president who they felt was actually going to fight for their own well-being. And Donald Trump really has no deference to the kind of priestly, clerical, opinion-molding classes. And this is a tremendously shocking thing, not only for Americans, but for a great many Western Europeans as well, that Donald Trump seems to throw out this entire politically correct apparatus and instead simply says things uh, that he believes or even things that simply sort of pop into his mind in a kind of unfiltered way. And that degree of spontaneity is as shocking, you know, to sensibilities as anything else, because this represents, you know, the idea that someone can succeed in politics without having the kind of internalized liberal consciousness that is desired by, you know, our establishment classes, especially outside of government, right? So it's one thing Mm. that Donald Trump may be shocking to bureaucrats within the government, but he's really, really nauseating to academics and to journalists and to people who think of themselves as the keeper of America's and indeed the world's morality and decency. And uh, Trump, because he uh, challenges that and simply doesn't defer to them, is a very sort of uh, dramatic shock to the system. I think that's one of the key points about the the meltdown over Trump. And one of the most significant areas in which this phenomenon plays out is in response to expertise and, and the role of experts. And here in the UK, one of the lines uttered by a minister that has had most impact was when Michael Gove, who's a central figure in Boris Johnson's government, when he said that everyone is sick and tired of experts. And this has become, you know, the most quoted line of recent times. It is 
dug up all the time to demonstrate that there are sections within the Boris Johnson administration which don't respect experts in the way that they should. And it strikes me that in the figure of Trump, that defiance of the writ of expertise or the or the, the kind of priestly knowledge of the new expert class is even more apparent. And I wonder if you could just speak a bit about how Trump's refusal to toe the line on certain issues, whether it's climate change or even on how bad COVID-19 is and, and other issues on which experts are expected to set the terrain. How much of an impact do you think his revolt against the experts has had on the political establishment more broadly and, and informed their hatred for him? There's this paradox or outright fraud with the political class and with people who claim themselves to be the defenders of liberal democracy, which is that, you know, democracy is ruled by ordinary people. And yet liberalism, as it is today, is often an expression of expert rule. And Donald Trump is, again, because of his sort of populist cast of mind and his uh, lack of deference to the experts, someone who reminds us of what democracy really is supposed to be, that it can be a rough and tumble, that there should be a difference of opinion, that people should actually have uh, a degree of conflict that's expressed through elections and their consequences. And all of this is antithetical to the idea of rule by experts, where the patient isn't meant to contradict the doctor, and the people are simply supposed to follow the directions of their betters. And that's especially true when it comes to these very abstract issues like climate change, where, you know, the question is not just the fundamental science of, you know, what might happen to the climate if you're putting out a certain amount of carbon dioxide, but rather these elaborate models, which are meant to be projecting out, you know, decades and even centuries ahead, plus the idea that, you know, there are easy political means available to address whatever issues might be uh, presented by these climate models. And all of that's rather untrue. I mean, this idea that, you know, the, the solution to uh, whatever uh, climate change fears we might have based on models is exactly the kind of political program that progressives have wanted all along, involving centralization and more expert control and so forth, just seems like a, a bit of a minor miracle. You know, it's, it's amazing that this, this prefabricated mentality is exactly what you need for this problem, which supposedly is kind of new and, and unprecedented. So, uh, you know, Donald Trump is, just, just such a radical break from this moral deference that you find towards experts. And, you know, I think they're, they're worried that what Donald Trump is doing is going to be contagious, not in terms of having COVID-19, but in terms of uh, encouraging other people and perhaps other leaders in politics, not just American politics, to say no to this clerisy. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hey Mel, Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm 
I'm so cold, but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget, just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian. There was a similar dynamic in the UK after the vote for Brexit. A great fear across Europe, in fact, that it would have a contagious impact on other peoples across Europe who were increasingly Eurosceptic and tired of technocratic rule and expert diktats. And in relation to both Brexit and Trump, I just wanted to ask you about how you see the link between these two things and other examples of populism around the world, because it strikes me that something fairly significant is happening with the like the rude intrusion of ordinary people back into the political sphere, pushing back against those who apparently know better, experts on climate change, experts on viruses, or supposed political and economic experts. Do you see Trump as reflecting a broader Western pushback against that kind of political rule? And and do you think Trump himself and his supporters have a feeling that they are part of something bigger than themselves. I think so. And I think that what you're seeing is in some ways comparable to the decay of Soviet communism, where you have an ideology which has great power and has been in power for a long time, and yet it's completely, you know, lost its connection to the public. Now, obviously, Soviet communism was not, you know, being supported by the mass public to begin with, but it did have, you know, at least a claim that it was doing things for you know, the people that it was oppressing. We obviously haven't had the same degree of oppression with liberal democracy, but we have had this claim by a commissariat that they are the sole representatives of the right ideology for everyone, and that there's really no arguing about it, there's no contest. If you were to reject it, it would mean you're rejecting science itself, rejecting history itself. And so right now, all around the world, you're seeing people ask themselves whether the rule of liberal democracy has delivered what they wanted, not just in terms of material goods, but also in terms of self-respect and the ability of politics to accommodate uh, competing views and different perspectives on, on stuff that actually matters. And there's been this kind of artificial consensus in the West for a rather long time. And it's a consensus that got us into things like the Iraq War, for example, where, again, there was a great deal of deference to people who claimed themselves to be experts in uh, what was going to happen as a result of the Iraq War and what would, you know, sort of break out in the Middle East. They thought it would be this chain reaction of sort of peaceful democratic uprisings, which is far from the case. We see it with climate change, where people are very frustrated that this very abstract issue is something that is now controlling, you know, everything from whether they can have plastic straws to whether they are able to drive their automobiles uh, as far as they want. These very expert-driven obsessions have tremendous uh, repercussions for ordinary life, and yet ordinary people are not supposed to have any means of expressing discontent with them. And the more you suppress the discontent that the people have, the more you shove out of the public square the necessary questions that should be asked, I think the bigger the backlash you're cultivating. And it seems to me that one of the risks with Donald Trump here is that if he is defeated in November, a lot of people, a lot of uh, experts who should be taking heed of the Trump phenomenon and trying much harder to make their case to the public are instead simply going to say, well, okay, the Trump phenomenon failed. We can go back to business as usual from you know, 1990 to 2016. And they'll be surprised and shocked when it turns out that Bernie Sanders or another populist figure on the right emerges and creates uh, an even bigger splash than Donald Trump did. In relation to that, I wanted to ask you about the challenge posed by Joe Biden, because I think there's something incredibly striking about the Biden campaign, which is that it seems to be purposefully shallow and purposefully empty of any kind of coherent or all-encompassing vision or policy. And if you look at the Democratic Convention, for example, it was very heavy on celebrity endorsements, but quite light on political substance and political debate. And it seems to me that Biden is hoping that he can win simply by not being Trump and simply by hoping that Trump behaves in ways which are 
difficult or objectionable or unpleasant and which might switch off certain sections of the electorate, which I think is an interesting strategy, firstly, because it suggests that the Democrats don't have a solid position from which to challenge the Trump phenomenon. But also, more broadly, as you've just touched upon, it suggests that they don't really have an answer to the origins of the Trump phenomenon and the origins of populism and instead are just relying on hopefully getting back into power almost by accident, almost by default. So how do you see Joe Biden's challenge and what do you think it tells us about the future of that kind of politics? Well, you're quite right. Uh, Joe Biden has run uh, a primarily kind of sentimental and feel-good campaign, and it's one which in great measure has been about not seeing too much of Joe Biden and not you know, kind of hearing too much from him. And it's interesting that, you know, both at the Democratic convention and at the first presidential debate earlier this week, this idea of Joe Biden's late son, Beau Biden, as this kind of national martyr figure that's that's now being, you know, sort of built up. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's very sad that he died, of course. And, uh, you know, he had a, a much more honorable life than uh, his brother, Hunter Biden. But the way in which, you know, Joe Biden has been hiding behind the legacy of his deceased son is just remarkable. And it, it goes to show that, you know, there's this incredible, again, it, it's, it's highly moralistic and it, it, it's an avoidance of any kind of serious substantive politics, any kind of offering the public a real sense of where a Joe Biden presidency would go. And another reason for this is that Joe Biden's own party has deep, deep cleavages and deep, deep divisions where, you know, you have this gerontocracy leading the party. So Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, she's 80 years old. Her deputy, Steny Hoyer, is 81 years old. Joe Biden is going to turn 80 years old, you know, in his second or third year in office if he wins the, the White House. The Democrats have this superannuated leadership class, and its ideas are even more sort of aged and decrepit than its physical form is. And then on the other hand, you have this, this base of the Democratic Party and some of these rising young politicians like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are much more to the left and much more sort of radical in their own way than your Bidens and Pelosi's and so forth. And there's this mismatch. And, you know, the Democratic leader in the Senate, Charles Schumer, he's someone who is very close to Wall Street, someone who's seen as a Democrat that the bankers can trust. Whereas on the other hand, the, the young Democrats, the people who like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, they're the Occupy Wall Street people. They are, you know, if not socialists, they're certainly people who really uh, perceive Wall Street as their enemy nonetheless. And uh, the Democrats, they're able to paper over those differences as long as they have Donald Trump to unite them in opposition. But as soon as they get into power, I think they're going to find that they really don't know what they want to accomplish. And it's going to hurt them, you know, if Joe Biden's president, I think in the 2022 midterm elections, they'll have a, a major setback. That quite neatly takes me on to something else I wanted to, to ask you about, which is the the pushback that we've seen in the United States over the past few months, the riots, the looting, all the various instabilities that followed the killing of George Floyd. And you wrote something very interesting about this, where you described this as violence sanctioned from above. And I was struck by something very similar, which was firstly, the unwillingness of significant sections of the media class to condemn the rioting and to condemn the looting. And in some instances, people were even making apologies for looting or justifying it as a legitimate form of political action. And even within the democratic establishment, certainly early on, there was an, a, a palpable reluctance to say anything critical about these this extraordinary uprising and this often quite nihilistic violence. So when you say this is violence sanctioned from above, do you mean that what we witnessed on the streets over the past few months was not so much a rebellion against the establishment as it was the revenge of the establishment and the revenge of the politics of the establishment against Trump, who is the genuine outlier rather than the people taken to the streets? That's right. A lot of the people taking to the streets are just uh, sort of white professional class liberals. And some of them may be very unhappy with their lives. They may be uh, feel as if they've reached professional dead ends or what have you. Although it's interesting, I mean, we've seen some young Harvard and Yale educated lawyers among those who are arrested for throwing Molotov cocktails. And uh, we've seen a few videos and other you know pieces of evidence as well, which says that a lot of black residents of the neighborhoods where some protests have taken place 
are very unhappy with these outsiders coming in and trashing their local businesses and, uh, you know, setting things on fire and generally behaving very badly. And yet, you know, the, the views of these locals and the views of the actual people who may be poor, they may be African American, they're exactly the people that the white liberals would claim that they are trying to uh, support. These people are, in fact, the ones who are getting hurt the worst by these kinds of, you know, riots and looting, arson and uh, mayhem in general. And of course, you know, the withdrawal of the police from these communities is also primarily harmful to the people who live in them. I mean, we've seen this. We've seen, you know, with the last uh, Black Lives Matter protests from 2016, that the loss of police in places like uh, Ferguson, Missouri, wound up leading to much higher crime rates, much higher murder rates in those communities. And most of the murders victims are going to be African-Americans. So it, there's, again, a, a, this, this very sort of pious fraud, this idea that, you know, as long as you're claiming to be on the side of the oppressed, it doesn't really matter how much you actually hurt them. And that's why I think you see this moral coordination between the actual ruling class, the people who are both in politics and also, you know, the likes of Jeff Bezos at Amazon.com and the executives of, of Nike and so forth. Why you see them all falling over themselves to, you know, proclaim their support for Black Lives Matter and uh, why none of them would dare speak out against the rioting and looting. They and the protesters both have this idea that, you know, there needs to be this kind of religion of liberalism, this religion of political correctness even today, and that that is how you maintain control in our society. And that uh, a little bit of violence that helps to promote those ideas is perfectly acceptable. And if the consequence is that, you know, a number of immigrant shops are burned down, well, hey, that's, you know, obviously no material damage to a, a company like Amazon, which is only going to fill the gap with its own uh, internet products and services instead. And it's no loss to the rioters and protesters because they are people who, again, oftentimes do not live in the communities that have been most badly damaged by their activities. So, I mean, I think it's a tremendous conjunction between, uh, you know, sort of upper class power and a certain kind of discontented, you know, kind of middle class or upper middle class professional group, which is kind of alleviating its boredom during the COVID-19 crisis by going out there and role playing anarchy and role playing, you know, as if uh, this is the civil rights struggle of the 1960s. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. I think that that conjunction that you refer to between the kind of upper middle class liberal establishment and the people taken to the streets, I thought that was best illustrated by the role that the New York Times 1619 project has played in relation to a lot of the ways in which the supposed radicals now understand America and their place within America. I thought it was incredibly striking that in one of the instances when a statue of Columbus was toppled, it was graffitied with the number 1619, a very clear expression of the New York Times outlook, you know, the newspaper of wealthy liberals inspiring these supposed revolutionaries to tear down examples of 
history and to to daub them with the supposed true founding date of the United States, which was founded apparently in slavery and sin and racism. And I think a couple of speeches that Trump has given over the past few months have made a lot of sense to me, and I'm sure they will have made a lot of sense to many, many Americans, particularly his Mount Rushmore speech, where he talked about the counter-revolution almost that is taking place in the US, where these people on the streets and people within the media elites are actually calling into question the American revolution itself. And of course, his more recent speech in which he announced the founding of the 1776 Commission, which would teach children the patriotic view of American history and the, the founding of America in the 1770s rather than in the 1610s. So how significant do you think that historic clash is in terms of what's happening in the United States right now? Because to me as an outsider, it looks like there is almost a battle for the soul of America, a battle to define when America was founded and what America stands for. I think that's exactly right. And what the left is trying to do, what uh, the 1619 Project is about, and what you know the whole ideological apparatus propagated by the universities at this point is about, is trying to make America all about guilt. And guilt is almost always a means by which you know, people can be controlled if it's institutionalized. And this really is a, a kind of new uh, priestcraft on the part of these liberal intellectuals. And by changing the founding date of America, by making it all about uh, slavery and the oppression of African Americans, uh, they're able to say that, well, because guilt is, is the founding principle of our country, you need this class of enlightened leaders who are going to help you expiate that guilt. And you really don't need to think about, you know, practical issues of whether your daily life is, is going well or not. You don't need to think about what's happening with taxes. You don't need to think about whether, you know, these supposed moral paragons are leading you into dead end and, and, and destructive wars within the Middle East. I mean, all of that can be put to the side because what's really important is just this idea of a moral salvation being brought about by recognition of our original sin and then a system of expiation for those sins. And of course, the sins can never be fully expiated. They're always ongoing. California right now has a reparations scheme. Nobody pretends as if reparations brings an end to the historical wound. It would be obviously absurd to say that it could. This is just yet an, another way of exercising not only practical power over people, not only, you know, sort of picking their pockets, but also and primarily exercising psychological power over people and internalizing uh, this sense of control and this sense of deference to the enlightened leaders. Donald Trump, by emphasizing the traditional founding date of America and by emphasizing the idea that America actually was founded in freedom and not in slavery, is a challenge to that. And it's a, a diametrically opposed point of view, and it's at the core of American politics in many ways. And uh, I suspect even if Donald Trump is defeated by COVID-19 and by uh, his own um, sort of tendency to go over the top in terms of his behavior at the debate uh, you know, earlier this week, for example— even if he's defeated by his personality quirks and by COVID-19, a lot of the ideas that Donald Trump has expressed and a lot of the sentiments that he's been able to personify from the American public, those will continue to be very potent. So I, I would see that this battle between 1619 and 1776 will go on no matter what happens uh, in November of this year. I agree. And I think it's a battle that could have global repercussions because, of course, the distinct thing about the United States of America is that it, it was the first country in history that was founded on the basis of enlightenment values, democracy, and freedom. And I think one of the most questionable things that has been done by the 1619 lobby and also by the army of supposed radicals who embody the spirit of 1619 as they're out on the streets tearing down statues or smashing up buildings. I think one of the worst things it's done is to really call into question the value of what happened in the US in 1776 and around that period, because I think their historical illiteracy is really spelled out in the fact that they failed to see that it was precisely the founding ideals of America which encouraged those who were still enslaved in the United States to do something about their enslavement. So it was the founding ideals of equality and freedom of speech in particular, which inspired subsequent movements to 
broaden those values and those principles to include everyone rather than a select group of people. So that's an important thing in particular to take them up on because in redefining American history to be simply a case of original sin, which as you say, we can never really absolve ourselves of, they actually undermine the fact that the founding of America had an extraordinarily positive impact for humanity more broadly. That's right. Our Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal. And while you know the founding generation wasn't able to live up to that with respect to slavery or with respect to any number of other policies, that ideal is so powerful that it has continued to change American life and American practice and politics, and in fact to change you know the world over the course of the next uh, 200 years. And it's because that ideal kind of transcends the limits of the time period in which it was expressed. And when you change that, when you say that, well, America is not about all men being created equal, it's really about a calculus of power between absolutely impermeable racial barriers and absolutely impermeable barriers of oppressed and oppressor, then you're getting back to, I think, a much older style of politics. It's very perverse because what's happening is that the supposed progressives, people who claim to be the heirs of the Enlightenment, are actually resurrecting this fundamentally racial and non-citizen point of view, this idea that we have these fixed identities that determine our political roles and that we are not allowed to transcend those identities. We are their prisoner and our whole lives must be spent with reference to these identities, which of course are determined for us by the critical race theorists and by uh, the journalists who propagate their ideas It's not as if ordinary people get much say in what these identities are. In fact, even ordinary minorities don't really get much say in this. And their cultures are being, you know, redefined for them. Even their very names are being redefined for them by these intellectual leaders, right? So the term Latino, for example, is very difficult for these progressive politically correct types because Latino is a gendered term. It ends in an O and therefore, you know, it's a masculine term. So Latino, Latina, which is also gendered, All of that is very confusing to people who want to eradicate the idea of sexual differences. And therefore, they have constructed this entirely artificial term, which is unpronounceable. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's like Latinx or something. It's Latin (laughs) X at the end of it. And they try to foist this upon Latinos. And, you know, actual Mexican Americans and Cuban Americans and Guatemalan Americans, they don't want anything to do with this. They think it's absolutely absurd and offensive. And yet we see more and more elite publications, not only, you know, academics, but also journalists using this absolutely ridiculous, artificially created term, which, you know, it's by no means rising from below. It's instead being imposed from above on a category of people who would like to reject it if they could. Absolutely. We've had a similar situation in the UK with the word woman spelt with an X, which is completely unpronounceable and is supposed to be inclusive of women who may have been born as men or non-binary people who identify as women, etc., etc. But of course, it's exclusive because it pushes out people's understanding of what the word woman means and people's understanding of what the differences between the sexes are. I want to come on to the language question in a moment a bit in a bit more detail, but just in relation to the critical race theory issue that you raised there and especially Trump's relationship to it. I thought Trump's recent criticisms of critical race theory were actually very good. And even more importantly than that, the very fact that a prominent leader, the most prominent political leader, was taking up this ideology was, I I think, was incredibly important. And if you look at what Trump is talking about when he's pushing back against critical race theory, he is pushing back against the idea that any particular race is superior to any other, the idea that America is a, is a racist country, the idea that there should be any form of discrimination in relation to race. You know, he's actually pushing what would traditionally have been considered the proper liberal, decent way of understanding race, which is that it is not significant and we should judge people by their character rather than by their color. And in fact, he quoted Martin Luther King. So we seem to have got to an extraordinary situation where Trump, who is apparently literally Hitler, is making a far better argument against the politics of race than the ostensibly anti-racist politically correct lobby, which which is pushing back against him. That's right. And it's interesting to go back and look at the insane things uh, that the actual historical Nazis wrote. And someone like Alfred Rosenberg is extremely clear. Alfred Rosenberg says that, you know, race is everything. And for America's politically correct left, 
that is equally true. And the fact that they're focusing on, you know, the glories and, uh, you know, the, a different race is, you know, their focus doesn't really change the fact that it's still a race oriented and, you know, sort of fixed and limiting principle. And it's a principle of simply power assertion of one group over another. Today, it's being justified as kind of active vengeance against the formerly oppressive group. But all of this is the way in which a ruling class continues its power without having to be democratically accountable by, you know, bringing up these absolutely impermeable, inflexible concepts and then saying that the good of this, you know, sort of holy term requires that policies be adopted and that leaders be accepted on the basis of the racial calculus as opposed to the basis of, you know, any kind of more <laughs> traditional view of liberty or of, you know, simple national interests in terms of prosperity and national security, or that, you know, people should be celebrated for their achievements as individuals and for who they actually are as opposed to what they are racially. All of that has gone out the window. And you see that it's not only, you know, remarkable as an ideology and as something that's being propagated by these opinion leaders, but it's also a tremendous business scam as well. And you see these, you know, sort of racial consultants who receive government contracts as well as contracts from uh, private employers. They're very, very well paid to come in and tell the employees of, of a government agency or of a business that all the white people working there are bad and all the non-white people working there are oppressed. I mean, what this does to morale and what this does to you know any kind of spirit of, of comradeship within an enterprise is just uh, you know incalculably damaging. And yet, because this ideology has acquired such a grip on the American mind, it proceeds. And uh, as damaging as it is to people's individual psychology, as damaging it is to a government that is meant to be colorblind and apply the law equally, and as damaging as it is to businesses that are meant to be out there trying to make a profit and trying to make products that are good for people, all of that is secondary to this idea of a kind of, you know, it's a form of justice, social justice, they call it. But it is so abstract and it is so connected to this um, inflexible idea of race that it is completely overwhelming of every kind of normal decency and normal human priority that, you know, Americans would, would really prefer to live their lives with reference to. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Okay, in relation to the question of language and the means of control that are used by the new priestly class and, and, and the new clerisy, you've written about the psychological manipulation that is employed in, in this effort to refashion language and impose language from above in relation to everything from Latinx, however you pronounce it, to the capitalization of the word black, which is now an incredibly mainstream thing in the, in the American media. How important do you think the role of language is in the way in which the liberal establishment, the liberal elite seeks to control not only how people speak, 
but also how they think, how they relate to other people, how they understand the world around them. And do you think Trump's uncouthness and his refusal to be politically correct is seen as a particular affront because it calls into question this project of of using language to manipulate people to think in a particular way? I think that's entirely correct, that uh, Donald Trump, because he'll go out there and say things which no, are very politically incorrect now. He'll refer to Elizabeth Warren, this Democratic senator who claimed to have American Indian heritage when in fact she didn't. Donald Trump refers to her as Pocahontas. And uh, that's meant to be incredibly offensive. Of course, it's not. It's not actually offensive to most American Indians. You know, there was uh, this uh, interview with uh, an American Indian who had fought in uh, World War II. And, you know, the media asked him, aren't you offended by Donald Trump using this Pocahontas language? And the American Indian soldier said, you know what, I'm not offended by that. And I wasn't offended when we all cried Geronimo as we, you know, jumped out of the plane in World War II. But you want to change language in order to change people's thoughts, and you want to inculcate a kind of internal policing. And uh, the fact that, you know, the, the word black now has to be capitalized, the way in which gender language, sex language has changed, that, you know, we now have these absurdities. You know, English has always had, you know, occasional uses of the plural they for singularities. But there have been, you know, kind of limited instances of that that have been acceptable. And now you see progressives insisting that anytime there is an abstract question about any individual, that that individual be referred to as a plural, as a they, because to say he or she by default would be uh, oppressive somehow. And so you wind up with some quite comical absurdities, you know, referring to ordinary individuals as they and them in contexts where it's, it's clearly absurd. And it winds up, you know, creating these ungrammatical constructions. Are you going to use a, a singular verb with a, a plural they? Because they is now meant to be a man or a woman. You know, nobody knows. And then, of course, you have these gender reveal parties, <laughs> which have set the whole state of California <laughs> ablaze. So we're, we're literally ushering in an apocalypse, you know, with these absurdities uh, that we've, these new rituals, as well as the new language that we've come up with. Americans don't like it, and they would like to rebel. But, you know, when you have such an overwhelming monolith of media power, uh, which is not just, you know, I mean, it's one thing if it's the New York Times or if it's, you know, the progressive television stations that are doing these things, but it's another when it's uh, Facebook and Google and Twitter and these tech companies, which are basically the distribution systems for all media, which want to impose some of these kinds of rules as well. And they haven't gone as far as the, you know, sort of academic wackos would like them to go. You know, we don't yet have Facebook censoring people because they're not capitalizing the word black or anything like that. But uh, there is this kind of steady pressure, and you do see it's it's like the proverbial frog being boiled in the pot. You know, they, they keep raising the temperature bit by bit. The frog supposedly doesn't notice and then gets boiled alive. In terms of the, the policies that Twitter and Facebook adopt, they never become more liberal policies. They never become policies that are more conducive to freedom. They're always policies which find, you know, sort of new levels of offense or new levels of danger and insist that everyone now uh, conform their behavior. That's another one of the key things, and maybe the most disgusting of all, is the way in which speech is now equated to harm, and speech is equated to danger. And you had, you know, journalists at the New York Times claiming that their lives were threatened by an opinion story written by a U.S. senator that they disagreed with. And this idea that, you know, having uh, wrong speech is an act of harm obviously leads directly to the idea that you should be able to criminalize speech. I mean, if you criminalize other kinds of personal harm, why wouldn't speech be part of that as well? And right now, we are at the level in America where this is still taking place primarily in the public realm. And we do, thank God, have the First Amendment, which really does pose a, s a significant barrier to any attempt to criminalize speech. But we see, I mean, it, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union, which was the institution of free speech absolutism. I mean, it stood up for Nazis marching through Jewish neighborhoods back in the 1960s and 70s, because this was you know, a, a kind of free speech and free assembly. And it may be extremely offensive, but nevertheless, this is what freedom is, is, is about. The ACLU has now largely given up the idea of defending the free speech rights of people who are, you know, demonic figures for the new clerisy. Uh, and so if even the ACLU is collapsing, there really is no uh, remaining sort of bastion of free speech absolutism. And, you know, I mean, I, the free speech is a concept which leads into conceptual difficulties, if you have a mob shouting down a speaker, for example, is that a suppression of free speech because the man can't speak? Or is it an expression of free speech because the mob gets to, you know, say its part? But these, those conceptual difficulties, I think, 
are rather different from the institutional and channeled power uh, that is going into right now suppressing free speech, free thought, and any kind of deviation from the, the clerical line. I think we're witnessing just how dangerous the idea of speech being violence is, because we've had a situation for the past few years where speech has not only been seen as as harmful and something that could could wound you, but also as a form of violence. And uh, over the past few months, in relation to the Black Lives Matter events, we've had the idea that speech is violence, silence is violence, as the slogan goes. But apparently, looting is not necessarily violence, and the burning down of buildings is not a a form of violence we should get too concerned about. So you have this Orwellian situation almost where words are seen as uh, violent acts, but violent acts are not seen as particularly problematic. And the thing that worries me most about the redefinition of certain ideas as a form of violence against minority groups or as a form of erasure, as an attack on people, an an unacceptable attack that has to be prevented. I think the worst thing about that idea is that it it implicitly sanctions violence as a response to words, because if words are violence, then they might legitimately be met with violence. And I think some of the events that we've seen on the streets of America over the past few months, where we've seen diners being accosted and we've seen mobs of people going into suburban areas and calling people mother effers and waking people up and confronting people in a semi-violent way. I think that really, in many ways, is the logical conclusion to the idea that has been growing on campuses and elsewhere for a long time, which is that certain forms of thinking and certain forms of speech are so awful and terrible that they have to be wiped out. And the people who hold those views have to be cleansed or corrected in some way. And as you said, I mean, it even goes far beyond that. Silence equals violence is extremely telling. It says that there's no neutrality, that unless you actively give your assent to this new religion, that you are, you know, presumed to be a heretic, presumed to be a heathen, and you can be burned at the stake, or, you know, at least for now, simply harassed at your uh, dinner table. And the tearing down of statues is, is a sign of this. You know, we're told that these statues are somehow oppressive, and that they are, you know, somehow doing real harm and therefore lawlessly tearing them down. It's not as if, you know, these protesters are organizing politically, petitioning the city councils and saying, look, you're honoring a a slaveholder here. This is a really, you know, bad thing to do. Why don't we have a vote on it? Or why why doesn't the city council in an orderly fashion, you know, sort of make up its mind here and, and say that it should come down? You know, one may agree or disagree with those arguments, but at least they are, you know, being done in a, a democratic uh, fashion. Whereas when you simply go out there in a mob and you tear something down, that is short-circuiting democracy. And that is saying that, you know, we don't need the rule of law. The rule of law, in fact, would be inadequate for providing justice here. And that justice and the prevention of harm requires immediate physical action, basically violence and, and um, vandalism. And if you start out doing that with inanimate objects, it seems as if the next logical step would be to do that to people as well. Because clearly, uh, people who have the wrong ideas or even people who fail to actively support the correct ideas are also, uh, and in fact, in, in a much more concrete way, doing harm. You know, I, I think it's, it's telling that you have the mobs going up to these diners and, you know, shouting at them, making their lives very unpleasant, but also insisting that they give, you know, sort of the uh, fist in the air salute. I mean, I mean <laughs> a mob going up to you and demanding you give a salute. What does that remind us of? <laughs> well, but no, these are these are antifa. You can't you can't even claim that these people are acting in a fascist way because their very name, and again we see language playing this role in thought control. No, their very name is antifa, they're anti-fascist. How can you possibly say that they could be something other than what they claim themselves to be? Because they control language. It's it's like saying that again, some sort of priestly class which is acting in the name of God could be ungodly and, and you know, sort of uh, even satanic in its actions. To say that is such an act of cognitive dissonance and defiance that it's, it's meant to be unthinkable. And they're going to make it unthinkable through rituals and through sanctions, uh, both private sanctions right now, but also, if they get their way, legal sanctions. This is one reason why there really are very high stakes, I think, in this election in November, because even though Joe Biden has a long record of being politically incorrect himself in many ways, supporting a 1994 crime bill, for example, which put a lot of black people in jail. Even though he has that record, his party is clearly entirely the party of woke right now. And if Joe Biden gets into power, what's going to happen is that all of the lower layers of government are going to be populated by 
in many cases, populated by people who were out there throwing Molotov cocktails and harassing diners and so forth, tearing down statues. They're going to be lawyers and uh, judges, and they're going to be bureaucrats and regulators, and they're going to run people's lives. They're going to try to dominate people with the law and not just with their, uh, you know, sort of street fighting terror tactics. And it's a terrifying thing. And when you have the state and street violence on the same side, which is what you're getting with the Democrats these days, you really do have a situation that looks an awful lot like fascism or looks an awful lot like early phases of Bolshevism. We need to put a stop to it right now. And Donald Trump is, you know, however crude an instrument, he is the instrument for frustrating these uh, these imperial designs. Yeah, I think the use of the term anti-fascist by these groups is just, in my view, a complete and utter affront to genuine anti-fascist movements from history, considering that Antifa is far more concerned with censoring people and punishing people and chilling the freedoms of society rather than liberating people from repression. For my final question, I wanted to just touch upon something you've mentioned there, which is what's at stake in this election. Because it strikes me that it's a very strange situation in America right now, where on the surface of things, it can often look like there isn't much coherent policy. If you look at the first televised debate, it was universally panned. It it wasn't very clear what Biden was saying. Trump was a bit more abrasive than he should have been. And it will have struck many people that it's not particularly clear what's at stake in this election. But I think the contradiction is that away from all of that, behind all of that, or next to all of that, there are huge stakes in this election. And I think one of the issues, if Biden and Harris were to be victorious, is not only that it would have the impact in the US that you're talking about, but I think it could have global repercussions in terms of weakening the populist revolts that we've seen over recent years and and emboldening the kind of woke mobs and the old technocratic elites and that kind of conjunction between the old establishment and these new energetic groups who want to impose their will on society. It could embolden all those sections of the political elites across the Western world, essentially. So how far would you go in viewing Trump as an essential barrier to all of that rot? And do you think he can successfully play that role for the next four years? Or do you think his own personality faults might get the better of him? Well, essential is the right word. And I do think if Donald Trump wins re-election, we will see even better policies and even greater defiance from Donald Trump than we've seen so far. And in fact, you know, uh, in just recent months, he has removed a lot of critical race theory training from American government departments. He has, you know, given a number of speeches where he has again reasserted our founding principles and the ideas of 1776. I think that will continue if Donald Trump is reelected. Whereas if he's defeated, it will be seen as a kind of psychological and moral defeat for everything that he has championed as well as for the man himself, even though I think the man himself really does loom very large in this election. And the way in which Donald Trump behaved in the first debate sort of confirmed, I think, a lot of Americans' kind of worst impressions of his personality. And that's very unfortunate. It's, I mean, one thing that was kind of a self-inflicted wound there is that, you know, by interrupting Joe Biden so much, Donald Trump didn't give Biden the chance to ramble on and show how incoherent he is. And instead, Donald Trump made himself the focus, but did it in such a way that I think a lot of ordinary Americans simply see him now as an unstable individual, instead of being one who's standing up for their rights and liberties. And there are global stakes in this, as you say, not just in terms of populist movements, but I think in terms of any kind of ability to dissent from this orthodoxy that's being uh, imposed uh, everywhere in the West, certainly. And of course, it's not only being imposed everywhere in the West through these largely passive-aggressive means, although in Europe, I mean, obviously there are laws against free speech and there are lots of restrictions. In America, the First Amendment um, does protect us from much of that. But you see that within the private sector, corporations are able to do whatever they want. They're not subject to the First Amendment. They're able to, you know, sort of inculcate this new religion of political correctness. But then you see in, in foreign policy that any country that defies this kind of thinking, whether it's Poland or Hungary or someplace in the, the non-Western world, they are going to be actually sanctioned. And you're going to have maybe not a war against these countries, but you're certainly going to see the West use actual government power to try to harass these dissenters into getting back into line. And as I kind of alluded to earlier in the podcast, I think what happens if you suppress all of this, 
all of this discontent and all of this sort of desire to have a real open discussion about what kind of moral rules we're supposed to be obeying. If you suppress all of that, you don't wind up creating a nice, you know, sort of permanently stable, enforced moral consensus. What you actually wind up doing is just sort of poisoning the whole idea of society. And as a result, you're going to get new eruptions of populism and of defiance of the orthodoxy, which may take more destructive forms. And I don't say that as a, you know, a, a kind of menacing warning. I say it simply as, I think, a, a psychological reality that you cannot take, uh, you know, people's basic ideas of freedom and say that those basic ideas of freedom are oppressive and evil and connected with Nazism and fascism and so forth. And then be surprised if somewhere down the line you have absolutely insane, you know, racists or militarists or whatever they might be, pop up and say, you know what, in the past, you people may have hated us because of our ideas. But now we're going to have a claim to be fighting against the people who are tyrannizing you day by day, then you're going to uh, have a lot of people start to be attracted to this lunacy. And it's actually the way in which the alt right was a creation of the liberal orthodoxies and of the uh, you know, sort of politically correct orthodoxies. A lot of young people, because young people are, you know, unfortunately, they're not very experienced, and they're not very wise. And so they get seduced by these alt-rightists who claim to be speaking up for free speech and who claim to be uh, resisting uh, political correctness. Whereas, I mean, they may be doing that, but they're also, of course, wanting to promote their own version of impermeable race. So you see the alt-right and the critical race theory left, they're actually working together and they're creating an establishment and an opposition which kind of affirm one another's most fundamental principles. And that is not only sort of extremely bad for freedom, but it's ultimately going to be very bad for, you know, human life and for, for the very things that, you know, the, the very first wave, perhaps, of politically correct people claim that they wanted to see. They may have, you know, overreached in terms of what they thought racial justice should be, but they really perhaps didn't think that they were going to be, you know, sort of instantiating Alfred Rosenberg's principles of race in the law of <laughs> American democracy. But that is the perverse uh, consequence of what they're doing. And it's not only, again, going to be in the law, but it's also going to be in the very sort of cleavages within politics between left and right. It's extremely perverse, extremely corrupting. And Donald Trump, far from being a driver of racism, is in fact the one thing that's holding back and preventing this whole system from becoming fully rooted. Daniel McCarthy, thank you very much. Thank you, Brennan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs>